go ahead and go to prayer before we jump into 1 Kings 21 this evening. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are all-powerful, that you are all-knowing. Nothing escapes your notice. And while in some ways that can seem a little scary, it is also a great comfort. It is a great comfort to know that you know all about the evil that some are doing. And we thank you that you are just and you will bring people to justice. Uh, we do pray and uh, long for, as we know you do as well, for people to come to repentance. Uh, but we are also comforted to know that when people abuse power and harm people, that even if in this life governments or other authorities don't catch it, you are not fooled. And we thank you that you will make all things right, even if sometimes it seems longer than we desire. But we are greatly encouraged to know that you will. And help us to have confidence in that, renewed confidence in that, and help us to be encouraged as we look at your word this evening. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. wanted to tell you about a, a, a little story of failed justice that I had read about <clears throat> that I think can help us see some of the things we're going to be talking about tonight. Um, on August 15th of 2003, there was a woman named Gwen Tai Hoan from Mi Village in Vietnam that was killed in her home. Now, there was a man named Chan who was the main suspect and was arrested by police for murder, her murder on September 28th in 2003. On March 26th of 2004, Chan was sentenced to life in prison. After his conviction, Chan maintained his innocence and made an appeal. However, the Supreme Court of Vietnam dismissed his appeal and upheld the initial sentence. Chan continued to make attempts to prove his innocence, and his family also campaigned for his release. Uh, Chan's wife uh, lodged a petition on July 9th, 2013, nearly 10 years after the murder had taken place, with new evidence showing that the real killer was another man named Chung, who was in the same area. And then on November of 2013, a court decision asked for a review of the case, and afterwards Chung admitted to the police that he had committed the crime. And therefore, on July 25, 2014, the Ministry of Public Security in Vietnam ordered Chan's release. So there are many cases that could be shared of this kind of example but this is an example of failed human justice someone was found guilty for something they didn't do and therefore spent about 10 years in prison for it even though he wasn't the one guilty of the crime in this world human justice will fail human justice will not be perfect it doesn't mean that we shouldn't have a system of government and a system of justice. We should. It is an uh, intention of God for there to be human authorities that carry out justice. But because we are sinners, 
there is going to be injustice that happens. In this case, it doesn't seem that there was anyone who had malice in this case or tried to frame him. It just was a mistake. But what we're going to look at tonight in 1 Kings chapter 1 is actually an egregious violation of justice by the highest authority in the land. The king and queen of Israel are going to commit injustice against an individual who is innocent, and it was purposeful and for selfish purposes. But it is comforting to know, ultimately, God sees these things, and God will avenge his people. So I want you to look with me at 1 Kings chapter 21. We're going to talk about God's justice, how he sees and will avenge his people. But let's start by reading verses 1 through 4. It says, Now it came about after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard which was in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab king of Samaria. Ahab spoke to Naboth saying, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it's close beside my house. And I'll give you a better vineyard than it in its place. If you like, I'll give you the money or the price of it in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid me that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. So Ahab came into his house sullen and vexed because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him, for he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and ate no food. So, uh, much to say there, but let's, let's look at how we see here a stand for righteousness by Naboth. A stand for righteousness. But to understand that, let's look into some of the details. First of all, the desire of the king. What does the king want? The king is actually at his second house. Do you notice that? Where, where does the king have his main palace? Where's the capital? Samaria, right? So this isn't even his only residence. This is uh, at least a second. No, no telling for sure how many he has. But he's at the palace in Jezreel. So he's at his palace here, and he desires to have a vegetable garden. I mean, that's, that's where he goes wrong right there, right? No. <laughs> um, he wants a vegetable garden. Uh, now, I mean, when you think about this, was the king really lacking for food? Did, did the king need food? Clearly not. The king has many servants to provide for himself, right? And if anyone's going to go hungry in the king's household, it's not the king and queen, right? It's going to be the, the helpers, the servants, right? If anyone's starving, it's not going to be them. So, and not only that, the, the thing that's funny to me as well is, was he really going to be the one working the garden and doing all the stuff so he wanted to be close so he could do all the work? Probably not. It, it's probably just he wants it close so he can look at it, right? And maybe he'll have some vegetables that he... Sure, maybe there will be some vegetables he is not currently having that he would like to have, and it would be easier to have them. But this really is a completely selfish unnecessary desire, right? 
So he desires a vegetable garden from, uh, by, by converting this vineyard into a vegetable garden. So he proposes a deal. Verse 2, he goes to Naboth and he says, hey, let me have your vineyard. I'll give you either a much better one, so a bigger, better, or I'll just give you the money for it. So he proposes a deal. It's, it, it's a reasonable offer for what he's asking. It's not, an un, it's not an unreasonable thing. He's not going as the king saying, hey, give it to me, you know, eminent domain. Uh, we're going to build a highway here and we need to take this. That's not what he's doing. He's offering to give a fair price, but it's based on a selfish desire. And we notice in verse 3, he is denied outright. Naboth doesn't mince words. He tells him, no. He says, I can't do this. But notice his reasoning why he can't do it. He says, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. What's he talking about? Well, look with me at Numbers 36. We'll be right back in 1 Kings, so don't lose your place there. But let's look at Numbers 36. I think this helps us understand. Numbers 36, and we'll look at verse 7. Verse 7, Numbers 36, it says, Thus... No inheritance of the sons of Israel shall be transferred from tribe to tribe, for the sons of Israel shall each hold to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. What's the point? The point is, Naboth recognizes that God has given this land to his family in an obedience to the word of God. He needs to keep it. Now, there, there are provisions in the law that allows under situations of need for it to be sold. But, clearly he didn't have need to sell it. This was just the king's wish. So, he is therefore denying the king based on his commitment to obey God's word. So, he's essentially standing against the king for a righteous principle. Because God has said not to sell your property, so he's not doing it. He's doing it in obedience to God. So then we see the response of the king is that he is downhearted. Verse 4, it tells us that Ahab came to his house sullen and vexed. Did you notice that's exactly the way chapter 20 ended? The second time in five verses we read that Ahab is sullen and vexed. Or as Patch the Pirate would call it, he has the poochy lip disease, right? He's pouty, he's, he's Mr. Sad Face, he's upset because something didn't go his way. So, we have Naboth standing for righteousness against a wicked ruler. Now, think with me for a second. How would you like to be Naboth here? How would you like to have been the one whose land just happened to be next to the palace? What do you think was built later? Naboth's vineyard or the, or the palace? Probably the palace, right? So Naboth didn't have any control over this circumstance. He is in the providence of God facing the situation where he has to stand up for this against the king. 
And we also, as believers in Jesus Christ, will face situations of God's providence that put us in difficult spots. And that's where we're going to see what happens with Naboth here. He's standing for righteousness. He has the right answer. But notice the sinful scheme to obtain the land that comes up here. Notice, uh, first of all, the problem discovery here by uh, none other than wonderful Jezebel. Look with me at verses 5 and 6. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said, How is it that your spirit is so sullen that you are not eating food? So he said to her, Because I have spoken to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it pleases you, I'll give you a vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Now, what did he leave off of that explanation? He left off the righteous reason why Naboth wasn't going to do it, right? But that, not like that would have mattered to Jezebel anyway, right? So he explains the problem to Jezebel, why he's so sad. So then she promises to take care of the matter. Look at verse 7. Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now reign over Israel? Arise, eat bread, let your heart be joyful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she promises to deliver it. And notice her terrible plan to destroy Naboth in order to get it. Look at verses 8 through 10. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal and sent letters to the elders and to the nobles who were living with Naboth in his city. Now she wrote in the letter saying, Proclaim a fast and seat Naboth at the head of the people and seat two worthless men, literally the sons of Belial, or uh, those who are worthless or good-for-nothing men, before him, let them testify against him, saying, You cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. What a wonderful wife. She is exercising the king's authority in his name, right? She explains this plan to these uh, city, local city officials. She, they, they, they're supposed to have a fast, put Naboth at the, t the head of the table, and they plot against him by setting up two men who are going to testify against him that he cursed God. Why does she need two men for this? Because it's... It's, it's in the law, it's written that there needs to be the mouth of two witnesses, right? In order for somebody to be found guilty and therefore be killed for their crime. So she is setting up his death. And she's using two witnesses to do it here. So, um, this again is a demonstration that Ahab and Jezebel completely disregard the word of God, except they manipulate to use it. So the one time they're following what God's law says, it's to use the two witnesses against this righteous man. So they have a complete disregard for God's word. They think they are above the law, and they abuse the powers of the government for their sinful, selfish, and silly desires. Now, this is certainly an extreme case, but we would also be mistaken if we don't think this same thing has been repeated 
over and over and over again throughout history. And happens in our day. Government officials abuse their power for selfish purposes today too. And it's possible we could find ourselves in a situation where the government is coming against us for a stand on a righteous issue. Now we have been greatly blessed for many years in this country to have a government that was founded upon biblical principles and how it operates. There's, there's a balance of powers. There's accountability within the laws and the, the systems of government. Why was that done? That was done because our, many of our founders who put these things in place understood the sinfulness of mankind and the abuse of governments from which, in, in some cases, they were fleeing. So they created a balance of powers. They created these things, and we've enjoyed many benefits of that throughout history. But we've seen even in recent days people can use the power of the government to go after people that disagree with them. And we need to recognize this may very well happen to us someday, and we need to be willing, like Naboth, to simply stand on the principles of righteousness, regardless of the outcome. But Ahab and Jezebel are abusing the powers of the government. Now, we know it's Jezebel taking leadership here, but we should not let Ahab off the hook here. And God certainly doesn't. Because the pronouncement of judgment comes to Ahab. Even if he is a passive participant, he is a participant nonetheless. Because he is not stopping this. And he has the power to do so. But we see next the spineless submission to the wicked plans. Look at verses 11 to 14. In verses 11 to 14 it says, So the men of his city, the elders and the nobles who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them, just as it was written in the letters which she had sent to them. This is remarkable to me. Now I know they're the king and they're the queen, and to resist them would potentially forfeit your own life. But how many different people are involved in this scheme? For sure you have the two guys that are sellouts that you just buy them off and they lie about Naboth. There's those two for sure. But it says there's nobles, there's elders. We're talking plurals in both cases. So there's at least half a dozen, if not more people, aware of this, and seemingly not one person stands up to resist this. Spineless, right? And... Not that they necessarily would have stopped it, because they probably would have had them killed too. But, evil must be checked. Righteous people must be willing to put their lives on the line when the situation calls for it. And seemingly no one in Israel that's aware of this is willing to do that. They just carry out the plans as suggested. Verse 12 They proclaimed a fast, seated Naboth at the head of the people. Verse 13, Then the two worthless men came in, sat before him, and the worthless men testified against him, even against Naboth, before the people, saying, 
Naboth cursed God and the king, so they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Verse 14, then they send word, basically. Um, they send word that the plan has been completed. Verse 14, then they sent word to Jezebel saying, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. It's done. Just like you asked. Not a single person in the whole chain resists the evil plan. Many, many participate in it without seemingly any serious resistance. And, um, you know, we, we, need to, we need to be aware that this is a threat in our day as well. There may be times where people in leadership are doing wrong, and we need to be willing to stand up and resist that if they're clearly doing wrong, as this is an example of what's happening. So, yet there's nobody with a willingness to stand up. And then we see Ahab is swift to take possession. Look at verses 15 and 16. Then Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead. Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. Verse 16, When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go out to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. So, didn't waste any time. Wife says, it's all clear. Ahab's on it. He's down there to go take it. Done, right? That was easy. Except there's one problem. What's that one problem? We have a holy God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, and just, and he's seen all this happen, and he's going to do something. So, we see God intervene here with judgment pronounced on Ahab and Jezebel. So let's look at what happens here to them. Verse 17 and 18. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone down to take possession of it. So, uh, Elijah's on the job. He's going to go meet Ahab. All right, verse 19. You shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, Have you murdered and also taken possession? And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, In the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, the dogs will lick up your blood, even yours. So we have a message of judgment here from God on Ahab for what he's done. God recognizes, of course, he's seen, he knows Ahab has committed murder. Broken a commandment there. He has coveted and taken his neighbor's possession. He covered his neighbor's land, broken the Tenth Commandment. And God says, you are therefore going to experience the same burial or the same death as Naboth did. He wasn't buried. The dogs instead uh, licked up his blood. The same will happen to you. So a shameful death is what will happen. So Ahab responds, verse 20, a real strong response here. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? 
So Ahab is, of course, unhappy with Elijah and views him as the enemy, which is interesting because what does Elijah represent? Elijah represents the Lord. He represents the truth. And Ahab is the enemy of the truth and the enemy of God, and therefore he treats his representative, Elijah, like that. Now, let's uh, look at more of the judgment that comes down on him verses 20 to 25 here. Verse, uh, the second half of verse 20, he says, uh, Elijah answers, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. It's an interesting description. Ahab is so committed to doing evil that it's described as having sold himself to it. He is given over to evil. He is so committed to it. That describes Ahab's lifestyle. Sold himself to do evil. All right, in verse 21, we're told about the slaughter of the males in Ahab's family. It says, Behold, I will bring evil upon you and will utterly sweep you away and cut off from Ahab every male, both bond and free, in Israel. So there's a judgment on the males in the house of Ahab. Does it remind you of a judgment pronounced on other kings? Just like what we see with Jeroboam and Baasha, right? And that's what he brings up here in verse 22. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger, and because you have made Israel to sin. Notice, again, he's committed that same sin of perpetuating false worship in Israel that God hates and is very angry with him for and has led Israel to continue to sin and therefore he's going to be judged for that and his house. His house is going to be wiped out just like those other two kings. And then verse 23. Don't forget about his sidekick here. His sidekick Jezebel. Also the Lord spoke saying about Jezebel spoke saying the dogs will eat Jezebel in the district of Jezreel. So she is going to be eaten by dogs. She is not going to have a burial. She is going to have a shameful death, as are the rest of Ahab's descendants as well. Look at verse 25. Oh, I'm sorry, verse 24. The one belonged to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs will eat. The one who dies in the field, the birds of the heaven will eat. So there's going to be shameful deaths on the descendants of Ahab, just like we saw with those other two kings, so it will be with Ahab. But if you're a careful student of the word, you may be asking yourself a very legitimate and hard question. If God knows everything, if God is all-powerful, if God is just, and if God is going to intervene, why did he wait until after Naboth was dead? And the scripture doesn't answer that question for us. And it is part of the mystery of how God works in this world and how his justice works. Sometimes God does intervene and sometimes he doesn't. Let me just give you a few examples that I think you're well familiar with. Moses, baby Moses, was preserved, rescued from destruction. 
But there were many other Hebrew babies that were not. Jesus escaped the massacre that Herod did with those children under two years old. Jesus escaped, but those other children didn't. Or maybe one that gets more at it in a way that's a little harder to, or a little easier to think through it. Herod Agrippa executed James the Apostle. But Peter, whom he intended to do the same thing to, was set free. Why? Well, we know in Peter's case, God had things for Peter to do still, including the writing of two books of Scripture that hadn't been written at that time. So, God's sovereignty comes into play here in a way that it's hard for us at times to understand, but it is a part of how He works. And instead of being discouraged that He doesn't intervene or didn't in certain cases, we should instead think of the positive. There are times when he does, and we rejoice about that, and that ultimately, even if he doesn't intervene to stop something now, he will ultimately hold everyone accountable for what they've done. In some cases, that final resolution of it will be the great white throne judgment. We don't know why he chooses in some case to or not, but we need to recognize God is just, He is sovereign, and He is wise. He has wisdom for what He does that in some cases we cannot understand. We simply need to trust. I wanted to share with you a story that I, that I read. I, th- I found this fascinating. It's a little long. I Hopefully I can make it kind of quick. But basically, um, this is an example of Someone who encountered 1 Kings 21 as one of the first things they read in the scriptures and they were struck by the justice of God and was used by God to essentially, uh, eventually lead them to Christ. So it's a little bit long, but I'm just going to read this um, testimony from you. The man who wrote about this is an Old Testament, uh, it was was teaching something from an Old Testament passage, and there was a student uh, who was, uh, let me get uh, caught up here, I'm sorry. Um, he was a, uh, a fellow, and he came up to this uh, Dr. Wright who was teaching, or would be preaching from the Old Testament at a conference. And he, and he said that he'd become a Christian through reading the Old Testament, and then Dr. Wright tells what happened in this man's life. So this, what he says is, He grew up in one of the many backward and oppressed groups in India, part of a community that is systematically exploited and treated with contempt, injustice, and sometimes violence. The effect on his youth was to fill him with a burning desire to rise above that situation in order to be able to turn the tables on those who oppressed him and his community. He threw himself into his education and went to college committed to revolutionary ideals and Marxism. His goal was to achieve the qualifications needed to gain some kind of power 
and thus the means to do something in the name of justice and revenge. He was contacted in his early days at college by some Christian students and given a Bible, which he decided to read out of casual interest, though he had no respect at first for Christians at all. It happened that the first thing he read in the Bible was the story of Naboth, Ahab, and Jezebel in 1 Kings 21. He was astonished to find that it was all about greed for land, abuse of power, corruption of the courts, and violence against the poor, things that he himself was all too familiar with. But even more amazing was the fact that God took Naboth's side and not only accused Ahab and Jezebel of the wrongdoing, but also took vengeance upon them. He was a God of real justice, a God who identified the real villains and who took real action against them. I never knew such a God existed, he exclaimed. He read on through the rest of the Old Testament history and found his first impression confirmed. This God constantly took the side of the oppressed and took direct action against their enemies. Here was a God he could respect, a God he felt attracted to, even though he didn't know him yet, because such a God would understand his own thirst for justice. Uh, that helped me thinking afresh about this familiar passage. It shows us that God is a God of justice. And though we don't always understand why justice doesn't work out as fast or in the way that we would like, God does work out his justice. He does deal with evil and he's going to continue to deal with evil. And that is, therefore, an encouragement to us as we deal with oppressive leadership and, and governments and things like that, knowing that God will make all things right. So as we conclude this chapter, it kind of ends in a way that you might not expect if you didn't already know the story. A summary is given here of Ahab's wickedness. Look with me at 25 and 26. It says, Surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel his wife incited him. So his wickedness was unparalleled. It's the most wicked king. And a part of the reason for that was his wife encouraged him to do evil. It wasn't all her fault, but she was certainly his partner in crime. And together they were a very wicked duo of unparalleled equal in Israel. And then verse 26, it tells us they were ungodly. Verse 26, he acted very abominably in following idols, according to all that the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the sons of Israel. So again, as we made the point a few weeks back, maybe a couple months ago, when Jeroboam started down this path of idolatry, he was leading Israel into the same kinds of sins that the Amorites God had kicked out of the land before them were doing. And that's what it's saying again. But in spite of that, notice how Ahab responds to the situation. Verse 27. It came about when Ahab heard these words that he tore his clothes and put, put on sackcloth and fasted and he lay in sackcloth and went about despondently. We see the despair of Ahab here, and we might think it's an act. You might be inclined to think he's obviously faking it because he's just trying to get out of trouble, right? 
But it tells us that he tears his clothes, a sign of grief. He takes off his royal robe, essentially, and, and, and tears his clothes. He's got sackcloth on. He's fasting. He is uh, going about despondently or downcast. This is different than what we saw in chapter 20, verse 43, and the beginning of chapter 1, where he's just kind of upset in a bad mood. He is this time showing a despair at the message, which shows he believes it. He recognizes it. And apparently there must have been some element of repentance in it, because notice how God handles this. There is a delight of God here to show mercy, even in judgment. Look at verse 28. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? This is amazing. We just got done reading that Ahab is the most wicked king and completely ungodly with the cooperation of his wife. And yet, he responds with despair and God's willing to have some mercy on him. Isn't that amazing? What does that tell you about our God? He rejoices. He delights in mercy. He loves to have mercy, even on wicked kings who deserve severe punishment. At their repentance, he delights in mercy. Notice what he does in verse 29. It says, Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his days, but I'll bring the evil upon his house in his son's days. So God doesn't remove the judgment completely. He delays the judgment, which is mercy. That's merciful. This shows us about God. Hopefully you're seeing that. You're understanding that. Our God is Merciful. Remember, even in James, we talked about mercy triumphs over judgment. Talked about in James chapter 2. God loves to show mercy. He, it, he doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked, the scriptures tells us. He would have all men to repent and to come to knowledge of Jesus Christ, to be saved and rescued from their sin. God delights in Mercy. And we can look at this and also think wrong about ourselves and think, Ahab doesn't deserve the mercy, right? We, we look at Ahab and say, of all the people that don't deserve mercy, he doesn't deserve mercy. But we think we do. But that's wrong thinking too. We don't deserve mercy. If anyone gets mercy, it is a gift of God. So, in conclusion, as we think about this chapter, we see that God is just, and He will bring about justice. The timetable may not be what we want. We may see it happen in some cases and be able to make some sense of it, and not in others. But we should take comfort that the God of the universe sees and knows and will deal with it. 
And therefore, we should take great comfort in that. He will deal with evil. But we should seek His mercy and we should pray for others to have mercy. But ultimately, we should take comfort in that He is going to right the wrongs of the universe. He will bring the entire world and everyone in it eventually to the justice they deserve. And He, unlike the human court we talked about at the beginning of our lesson, will not make a mistake. He will not get it wrong. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are all-knowing and all-powerful and that someday all men, women, children will have to answer to you for their lives. It is a scary thing for us to think about, Father, having to answer, but we... Those who have come to trust Christ take great comfort in the fact that Jesus Christ has paid for our sins and our only way that we can stand before you righteous is because of his work. But we do also take comfort in the fact that knowing you will deal with evil. Help us, Father, like Naboth, to be willing, even if it were the highest authority in our country, to be willing to stand for what's right, even if that means at the cost of our lives. Help us also, Father, be willing to resist those who would do evil and may be trying to involve us in it. Help us, Father, to have courage to stand against it, not just passively go along with it. Help us, Father, to take comfort that eventually you will sort it all out and bring all to justice. And we thank you for the encouragement of your word. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.